there are a number of applications that uh, could have been made on politics from this passage, but uh, I felt that it was really important that we apply the work of God's humbling in the hearts of men, and I'm not even going to be pointing one finger at the politicians this morning. We're going to be squarely applying this work in our own lives because I think we need to uh, have this work uh, powerfully applied to us. In verses 1 through 3, we see the end of the story, as it were. We see the results of God's humbling work, and it's a remarkable result that God worked in him. And it's encouraging to me. If God can change the egomaniacal uh, Nebuchadnezzar of chapter 3 into this thoroughly humble man, then God can produce that grace in us as well. Take a look at the first part of verse 1. Nebuchadnezzar the king to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth. You know, we're pretty quick to tell others about the good things uh, in our lives, the things that make us appear uh, uh, good in their eyes, but we're very slow to do what Nebuchadnezzar has done here. He is publishing the whole wide world, the sordid details of his awful pride and how God has had to debase him. Uh, he's giving to the world uh, the, the description of his insanity. Uh, think of how embarrassing it would be to let the whole world know, you know, I've been insane for seven years, was out in the fields eating grass uh, with the beasts of the field, and to tell some of the sordid sins of his life that God had to abase and to humble and to deal in his life. He doesn't just tell a few you know, some counselors who already knew about his insanity know he publishes this far and wide. And uh, that is not something that comes naturally to our human heart. Naturally, we want to hide that. Uh, we don't want people to think uh, poorly or to see the real us. And I want to examine, was it really embarrassing for Nebuchadnezzar at this point? I think maybe a year earlier it would have been very uh, embarrassing because at that point his humbling had just been an outwardly forced humbling. But God has done such a powerful work of grace in his life that uh, in verse 2 he says, I thought it good to declare. Now the literal Hebrew of that is, it was a beautiful thing before me to declare. One version has, it is my pleasure to declare. To me, this shows a profound working of God's grace in his life because he's not being forced by God. Okay, you've got to confess to all these people because of your public sin. And so he grits his teeth and he confesses and then hides his face in abject shame. No, he says, it is a beautiful thing for me to share this story with you. It is something I take pleasure in. And it shows this is not an outward humbling. This is a working of God's grace that has profoundly changed him from the inside out. And what I want to ask you is this. How do you respond to God's working when he has pointed out sins in your life, when he has asked you to change? Do you do everything possible in order to preserve your pride, in order to preserve some kind of respectability and dignity? When God convicts you of sin... Does it take you hours of struggle with the Lord before you finally decide, okay, I'm going to give in, or maybe it's days or weeks. Uh, I had a, a time in my life where I struggled for a whole year of misery, uh, arguing with God about why I really didn't need to confess this uh, particular sin to individuals, and it was not until I did so 
that I found peace and I found joy in the Lord. And I wondered afterwards, this is ridiculous. Why did I go through this for so long? You know, in verse 27 of chapter uh, 4, uh, Daniel warns him. He says, there may be a lessening of this judgment if you will humble yourself by repenting, turning away from these sins and doing righteousness. Apparently, Nebuchadnezzar found it too hard to do that. Uh, verse 29 tells us it took 12 years, uh, 12 months, a whole year before Nebuchadnezzar was willing to come to the place. Actually, even at that point, he wasn't. But let me tell you this. If you are one of God's elect, as Nebuchadnezzar was, God will pursue you and pursue you and pursue you until that humbling work is accomplished in your life. Why? Because God hates pride with a passion. And He loves you. And He does not want you stewing in that pride. He wants you to be rid of that. It's not worth holding out on the Lord. And the sooner that we give in to the Lord, the sooner we can enter into His joy. James says that God resists the proud and he gives grace to the humble. I think Nebuchadnezzar beautifully shows those two sides of uh, that equation. Uh, even sometimes when we admit uh, our, our wrong to others, there is an embarrassment which, again, I believe shows the lingering aspects of that pride uh, within uh, the human heart. We have a facade that we're trying to maintain at all costs, and we don't like people to find out who the real us is. Well, Nebuchadnezzar had come to the place where what he cared about was God's pleasure, not what other people thought about him. He really wanted God working in his life, and so he was willing to face the shame and the snickers of the world so long as God was pleased with him. And that's really the end result of a genuine working of God's grace, that we are embarrassed when, when God thinks poorly of us, but if God thinks well of us, we're not embarrassed at all by what the world thinks. Our shame and our glory is in God's frown and in His smile. And one of the things that I've been really encouraged by in recent uh, months is to see the number of uh, pastors in Omaha whom God has been doing a work of humbling in their lives. And I've shared with you some of the humbling work that God has done in my own heart over the past year. Uh, it's an amazing thing. You can be totally blind to your, your sins and totally blind to your pride. And when the Lord puts His spotlight there, it just comes to the surface. And uh, you, you see a heart that is full, full of wickedness. But I've seen the Lord's humbling work, not just in pastors, but I've been seeing it in the lives of members of churches as well. And the reason that's encouraging to me is that is a prelude uh, to revival. And we need to welcome God's humbling work. Uh, we've got to come to the place that when another person points out sin in our life, we welcome it because we are so intent on pleasing the Lord and having His pleasure at a moment's notice. We are willing to put what is presented to us under the blood of Christ. And if you hold out and you're not willing to do that, you're going to be miserable, just like Nebuchadnezzar was for seven years or like David was. In Psalm 51, he's talking about the misery, the absolute misery that he went through when he was trying to hide his affair with Bathsheba. Uh, he tried to keep anybody from finding out about that. In fact, he went to the place of even engaging in murder in order to cover his tracks. That is the kind of power that pride can have in our lives, the self-destructive power. But you know, when God did his humbling work in David through the prophet Nathan, David suddenly came to, the, came to the place where he was not only willing to confess to God, he was willing to confess to the whole world. 
Because again, it was God's favor, not what others thought about him that counted. And believe me, he made some enemies when he made that confession. Ahithophel, Bathsheba's brother, was very upset with uh, David, it appears, because he was part of the conspiracy against David. Uh, and uh, so there was uh, uh, some negative repercussions that came out of sharing, but David was so God-centered at that point, he valued, he took pleasure in being small in God's uh, sight. And I think many times we are too big for God to use, too big in our own eyes for God to use. Uh, the, the power and the victory comes as we humble ourselves. But don't stop there. Nebuchadnezzar also exalted the Lord. And I think those two features, again, are flip sides of the same coin. Uh, we've pointed out in the past that prayerlessness is a sign of pride, right? Because if you're prayerless, if you're not going to the Lord with your request, that means that you're acting or you, you believe that you can do things on your own. You don't need the Lord's help. So prayerlessness is a sign of pride, but praiselessness is also a sign of pride. And I want you to turn with me and uh, take a look at verses 3 and uh, 2 and following. I thought it good to declare the signs and wonders that the Most High God has worked for me. How great are His signs and how mighty His wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and His dominion from generation to generation. Uh, God's signs and wonders He brought into His life made Him feel pretty small. But He says He took pleasure in being small. He took pleasure in letting God be God and not no longer having to struggle and holding up the weight of this facade that was all around him. As I mentioned earlier, most of us are too big for God to use. Power in ministry comes only through the wicked gate of humility. And uh, I think the flip side of that is there needs to be praise. There's no true humility if we are not praising the Lord. Take a look at the last few verses of chapter 4, verses 34 and following. And I want you to notice the, the role that praise, when he comes to the position of exalting God on his praises, has with his healing. At the end of the time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my understanding returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom is from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. He does according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. No one can restrain his hand or say to him, what have you done? At the same time, my reason returned to me and for the glory of my kingdom, my honor and splendor returned to me. My counselors and nobles resorted to me. I was restored to my kingdom and excellent majesty was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the King of heaven, all of whose works are truth and his ways justice, and those who walk in pride he is able to abase. Humility and praise form a huge foundation to spiritual victory. Sometime you might want to do a study and just trace the number of times that, um, that singing praises to God is connected with spiritual victory. Uh, I've counted over 50 times uh, in the Bible where that has been true, some of them even in physical battles like Jehoshaphat. When he went into battle singing praises to God, he doesn't even lift a, a sword, and God brings his victory. But many times, that humbling of ourselves and exalting God on our praises are connected with um, uh, the, the, the um, 
the, uh, um, the victory of the gospel going forward. <clears throat> I'm going to take a look through uh, several verses here and show you how this is the recurring theme throughout this chapter. Verse 17, halfway through. He says, in order that the living may know that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men, gives it to whomever he wills, and sets it over the lowest of men. Now that's the watcher, that's the angels who give this as the purpose of that dream. Uh, then in the second half of verse 25, Daniel gives the same purpose. They shall wet you with the dew of heaven, seven times shall pass over you. Notice this next phrase, till you know that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men and gives it to whomever he, uh, he chooses. In other words, God's purposes is to show that he is boss, and we're not boss. Uh, second half, uh, or last phrase of verse 26, after you come to know that heaven rules, God keeps up the pressure until we acknowledge that heaven calls the shots. Look at verse 32, second half. This is God's voice. We have the angel, we've got Daniel saying it, and here God says it. They shall make you eat grass like oxen, and seven times shall pass over you, here's that phrase again, until you know that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men and gives it to whomever he chooses. And of course, we've already read, Nebuchadnezzar says exactly the same thing in the last verses. So it's a very significant theme throughout this whole chapter. Now what I want to do is I want to just briefly show one of the processes that God used in order to bring that humbling work in their lives. There's four altogether. In verses 4 through 18, we see uh, him using dreams and visions. And God has used this to break tough nuts. In the Islamic world, you find this uh, frequently, stories coming from there, and in many ways a parallel with Nebuchadnezzar. Verses 19 through 27, the bold proclamation of the truth by Daniel. Verses 28 through 33, through a disease. And again, it's a miraculously imposed disease, but God has many times had to bring disease or some other calamity to bring people to a place of uh, humility. Verses 34 through 37, through healing, through a miracle. So it's both the blessings and the negative things. But I want to spend the next few minutes just focusing on that one, Daniel's bold proclamation of the truth. In verse 22, he says, in effect, you're the tree king. And that tree is going to get chopped down. And you realize uh, uh, who um, Nebuchadnezzar has killed in the past. Uh, you realize pretty quickly Daniel could get, get chopped down by being bold in his proclamation of the truth here. But Daniel is willing to do it even though the truth is a bitter pill to swallow for Nebuchadnezzar. And we find that throughout the scripture. God calls us to proclaim the truth to the world even when it's bitter. Uh, David was confronted by Nathan. It was a bitter pill to swallow. Uh, you look at the application of the doctrine of hell, uh, the doctrine of um, the wages of sin is death, and you find that is a bitter pill for the world to swallow, but we are called to preach that. Now, I should point out that um, the way we do it makes a huge difference. He's not saying that we should be harsh in doing this. I want you to notice in verse 19, Daniel is not harsh at all. He shows love to Nebuchadnezzar, uh, he's, he's troubled by the fact that he's going to be um, uh, judged. And then the last phrase, it says, My Lord, may the dream concern those who hate you, and its interpretation concern your enemies. He's kind. He's sympathetic. In Ephesians, it says, We need to speak the word, uh, to speak the truth in love. 
There needs to be that balance. Uh, secondly, uh, not only uh, should there be bold proclamation, even when it's bitter to swallow, but secondly, the truth sometimes sounds incredible. And in our pride, we may have a hard time believing that. You know, in verse 25, when he says, you're going to be uh, out in the fields, uh, eating beasts, uh, eating the grass like the oxen, uh, you know, Nebuchadnezzar probably would have had a hard time believing that. And as the story tells us, he probably didn't believe it. For 12 months, he goes on acting as if this is not going to happen. Believe me, there are people to this day who scoff at the book of Daniel because of some of the miracles that are mentioned in here, and including this one. Commentator who says that this is just another example of uh, how uh, Daniel uh, buys into mythology. But uh, there are psychiatrists who have found exactly this kind of phenomenon that they have uh, they have uh, clinically observed where people act like animals in many different ways. We've seen it out in Ethiopia where people uh, would run with the packs of hyenas. I mean, this has been documented many times in Ethiopia. Would go out and attack uh, and would scavenge right along with the hyenas. Um, Kitchen, in his uh, book, he, he documents a case in England what is very much parallel to this where a person thought that he was an ox and he was out in the field for years eating grass. Now, it's demonic, and we could perhaps deal with that whole issue at a later time, but the point I want to make is truth is many times stranger than fiction, and people have a hard time believing it. In their pride, they think there's no way. What Scripture says, we must believe it because God has told us. He is the whole source of truth anyway. And in a time when uh, life and the body is worshipped, it's not valued, but it's worshipped, it may be hard for people to believe that a 33-year-old would give his life as an atonement for our sins. Uh, It may be hard for people to believe in a doctrine of hell. You know, in in an age when there are ever-shifting values, it may be very hard for people to believe uh, that an individual would stand for absolute truth and absolute morals. And they may scoff, they may mock at that. And yet, we must humble ourselves before the Lord and stand for that which is offensive, even when evolutionists scoff at the idea that we hold a six-day creationism. Or even when uh, philosophers may mock at uh, our cosmology. Or when free love advocates may snicker at our, at our morals. We stand for the truth because God is the only definer of truth. And we need to rejoice in it relinquish our pride. Another feature of the truth is that it gives hope. Sometimes it gives hope to people that we wish it wouldn't give hope to. Sometimes God is patient with people we wish he wouldn't be patient with. We wish, Lord, why don't you strike them down right away? Why don't you exalt righteousness right away? Well, Daniel does not show that kind of pride. He shows a humility in his dealings with God in providence. And uh, in verse 26, he indicates a real compassion uh, for... Uh, for Nebuchadnezzar. First of all, he gives them hope concerning the dream. Inasmuch as they gave the command to leave the stump and roots of the tree, your kingdom shall be assured to you after you come to know that heaven rules. Now that in itself would have been a real comfort to Nebuchadnezzar. But in verse 27, he gives further hope. Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by being righteous and your iniquities by showing mercy to the poor. Perhaps there may be a lengthening of your prosperity. And that divine perhaps 
I think is a glorious doctrine that we can lay hold of. Uh, where there is repentance, uh, the Lord many times will relinquish his judgment. Perhaps the Lord may relent in his judgment on America. But again, that brings us right back to our common theme. Repentance is talking about a humility, bowing ourselves before the Lord. And you will never know the joy that Nebuchadnezzar entered into at the end of his life there if you only repent halfway. Well, I can repent of these things, but boy, I'm just that's just too much to repent of everything. Well, there's no point. You're going to be just as miserable if you repent halfway as if you've repented none of the way. It's not until you completely clear the deck, it's not until you take all of the blame, not just part of the blame that God lays, that God begins to pour out His joy in your life. <clears throat> now, if you're taking notes, you're probably having a real hard time following the outline. Didn't get one in the outline. But let me just end with four more applications in this whole area of truth. And as it relates to God's work of humility. And um, they're summarized by four L's. Long, live, love, and look. First, we must long for the truth. Unfortunately, Nebuchadnezzar didn't long for the truth initially. Um, uh, he wanted a quick fix. He was hoping that there could be an explanation that would be satisfactory with regard to this uh, dream. And uh, it was not until after the seven years of humbling that he wants what God wants no matter how difficult that may be. And he praises the God of truth in verse 37. I talked to a pastor last year. It was in a group of pastors that we were meeting with. And this person said that uh, he didn't like doctrine because doctrine divides and we ought not to be talking about doctrine. And that was bad enough for him to say that, but a whole pile of these pastors are saying, yes, amen, we shouldn't be looking at doctrine. I was just grieved in my spirit because I am convinced that is not the spirit of Scripture. God loves the truth, and He wants us to love the truth. That's why He's given it to us. Doctrine is very important, and the Scripture talks about doctrine over and over again. And I believe that a sign of a healthy Christian is one who longs to study the Word, who cannot get enough of it. Psalm 119, verse 20 says, My soul is consumed with longing for your laws at all times. Verse 40 says, how I long for your precepts. Verse 131 says, the entrance of your words gives light. I opened my mouth and panted, for I longed for your commandments. Proverbs 2 says that we need to be searching for wisdom as if we were searching for hidden treasure and for silver. Now that presupposes already that we are humble because searching for truth many times is uncomfortable. I've had people tell me, in fact, a, a friend in... In seminary, one time, we were discussing a given uh, topic, uh, and uh, he came up, and when he heard what we were talking about, he says, I don't want to hear about it, and he left the room, and we talked about it, he says, well, I'm not responsible if I don't hear it. Nuh-uh. <laughs> God says, you got to long for the truth because you are responsible for that truth, and you're going to be held even more responsible if you're not searching for the truth. So we need to be uh, doing that, but secondly, we need to live the truth. 1 John 1, 6. If we say that we have fellowship with Him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not live in the truth. 1 Peter 1.22 calls us to obey the truth. Now that's absolutely essential or we will fall into pride. Uh, and the reason for that is that knowledge, when it's not being implemented, 
leads to pride. 1 Corinthians 8.1, it says, knowledge puffs up. It was interesting, when I was in a seminary, Mr. Frame, one of my favorite professors there, one of the first things that he said when we were in class was that uh, seminary is one of the worst places to train seminary students, and we were kind of taken aback, and he started explaining, and there were several reasons for that, but one of his reasons was that it sets people up to be sterile in their Christianity. He says they fill their minds with facts, and they never implement them on a day-in and day-out basis, and consequently, over a three-year period, they become sterile, and they're conditioned to think that that's the normal way to live, and he says it's terribly dangerous to be in an atmosphere where you fill your mind with knowledge, and you don't live in the truth. Or maybe some of you are there. You love the doctrine of Trinity. You love the teaching. But God has convicted you because of your lack of love towards some individual. Or he's convicted you about some other area. And you've been resisting that. Let me tell you, you are going to be miserable, made miserable by the Lord, if you do not live out the truth. The two have to go hand in hand. Now, um, it's very easy for us then to say, well, I don't want to search for the truth because then I'm going to be responsible to live by it. Just like Nebuchadnezzar, you know, once he knew, he was held to even greater accountability. But God says, it doesn't matter which way you go, you're accountable. You are going to be held accountable by God. So you need to love it. You need to live in the truth. Thirdly, we need to love people in the truth. Not just an abstract thing, but we need to love people in the truth. Let me read you a few scriptures that affirm this. Second John 1 says, To the elect lady and her children, whom I love in the truth, 3 John 1 says, To the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. 1 Corinthians 13, 6. Love rejoices in the truth. Now, there are two extremes that people can go to on this. Some people, like I mentioned earlier, want to drop doctrine and drop rebukes or anything that makes others feel uncomfortable and just have this warm, mushy love. Let's just love one another. Sort of like Barney, you know. I love you, you love me. We're one happy family. It's just a mushy type of a thing. Let me tell you, if your love is undefined, it can lead to fornication and worse. Scripture is emphatically clear Love is the fulfilling of the law. It does not set aside the law. Christ says love fulfills the whole of Scripture. It does not set aside the doctrines of the Scripture. And so our love must be defined. That's the first extreme that we can go to is having an undefined love. The second extreme is that we can have an uncaring truth-telling. An uncaring truth-telling. Ephesians admonishes us to speak the truth in love very easy for us to begin using truth as a weapon to beat people over the head with. And God says, that is wrong. That is wrong. Paul gave this high standard in the same chapter. Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but only, okay, this is what's only supposed to proceed from our mouth, only what is good for necessary edification, that's building up of other people, that it may impart grace to the hearers. Make sure you share the truth in that way, or it is shared out of pride. That's a definition of sharing the truth in love. Now, Daniel here shows that he loved Nebuchadnezzar. He cared about Nebuchadnezzar. The last application is that we need to look for people and bring them to the truth. Look for people and bring them to the truth. Now, Daniel could have given this uh, uh, interpretation and just left it at that and just said, 
Go get him, God. I'm, I'm looking forward to that judgment coming. But he didn't do that. In verse 27, he says, Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by being righteous and your iniquities by showing mercy to the poor. Perhaps there may be a lengthening of your prosperity. He sought to win Nebuchadnezzar to the Lord. He sought to win him and bring him to the one who is the truth. And that takes boldness, compassion, it takes love to be able to look for people and bring them to the truth. But I think that's what Christianity is about. We are all called to be fishers of men. And when we begin to uh, uh, look at the uh, things that this chapter talks about, all of this chapter is talking about a humbling work that God has in our hearts. And uh, as we look to God's ways and we give ourselves to Christ and we say, take my life and let it be, uh, consecrated Lord to thee, you are the potter, I am the clay. When we take that kind of an attitude, God says, good. When you see yourself as nothing, I will exalt you and do incredible things through you. And so I, my admonition to you this morning is, humble yourself under God's almighty hand and he is guaranteed that he will lift you up. Let's pray.